Hello, this is Dr. Rob Waller on the Mind and Soul podcast. Today I'm speaking about resilience at an event recorded in Melbourne, Australia in the summer of 2018. Hello, welcome back in. Last few coming, so let's, let's spend a bit of time talking about resilience. So it's great to have a, a sort of conference focused on, on resilience. And like I say, it's something that um, when I was young, it meant something different. So perhaps we'll try and work out exactly what, what resilience is. It's on the next slide there. This is a, this is a picture of my, my seven-year-old. I've got two active boys, David, who's seven, and James, who's nine. And um, they've both become, well, James certainly has become a little Kiwi kid, hasn't worn shoes in about two years. Um, it's different over here because you've got scorpions, isn't it? And snakes and things like that. But New Zealand, no one, none of the kids wear shoes. Um, David does like wearing shoes, but he's definitely enjoyed the outdoor programs and the, the, the school playgrounds and that sort of thing, which you do fantastically across this side of the world. So, so I said to David, what is resilience? Sharp as a knife, straight back, bouncing back. He's been taught that resilience is bouncing back. What does that mean? Shrug, shrugged his shoulders. <laughs> no, okay, he's seven. You've got, you got to pick your time to have a conversation with a seven-year-old. But <laughs> my, my, my point is, you know, he knew that resilience was bouncing back. If, ha, ha, does he know that he's resilient? I mean, he has. He's moved 12,000 miles, and he's going to move 12,000 miles again. So he is, he is a resilient kid, but does he equate that knowledge about it being bouncing back with actually being resilient? And I guess that, to me, is one of the sort of key things in teaching people resilience is it's one thing to teach resilience, it's one thing to produce resilient kids. And that's really what we need to be trying to do. I mean, it does sound, it's a very intuitive concept, isn't it? So resilience is just this sort of simple sort of idea. It's, it's just this idea that you're resilient, aren't you? You, you, you bounce back, you, you, you respond well when, when life throws its problems at you. When I was young, just on the, on the next slide, we had these toys here, weebles. Do you have weebles across here when you were growing up? I remember a, a good friend of mine who I was at primary school with, his um, father was fast asleep in the chair in the sitting room, and Mark went and woke him up with the weeble by doing this smack and brought the weeble down on his father's head, and his father's hand shot out and grabbed him around the neck and lifted him up, and then opened his eyes and realized what he was doing and thought, hang on, probably ought not to do that, put him down again. But that, that, that's my main endearing memory of weebles is being used to wake up Mark's dad. But, but they, were, they, they would just sort of bounce back, and I, I was going to play you a cheesy weebles commercial, but... Um, Many of you probably are not old enough to remember that, and you might think I'm weird. So, but they would just bounce back, and they were these little sort of great toys that they would bounce back and be very resilient. Or you can get books like this one, Why Things Bounce Back. If you, if you go and look in the self-help bookstore area in the local bookshop, you'll find hundreds of things that it just bounced back. It seems to make so much sense. But the question is, are we building resilient kids? A friend of mine, Glyn Harrison, who's a professor of psychiatry at the University of Bristol, retired a couple of years ago, has written a book on self-esteem. And it is available um, from, from Harper's, Harper's New Zealand and Harper's in Australia. Um, but this is the English cover of it. And I think they've got a different cover across here. But it's called The Big Ego Trip. And what he does is he basically critiques self-esteem. He basically says, self-esteem is this big fluffy bubble that got built in educational theory 
about 20 years ago. And what is it? And he says that self-esteem as a diagnosis is quite self-defining. It's quite self-circular. It, it's to be confident. What does it mean to be confident? Well, it means to have self-esteem, etc. It's, it's this relatively intuitive concept, but it's quite hard to actually pin it down. We all know what good self-esteem is, don't we? Or, or, or do we think it's, he calls it boosterism, just boosting yourself up. And he would say, actually, esteem is given. It's not something you achieve. Christ gives us esteem, and we have Christian confidence. You know, that, there's, a, there's a book by Joanna, Joanna McGrath called The Cross and Christian Confidence, which is all about a Christian approach to self-esteem as, as given esteem, as being better than self-esteem. And then he also goes on to critique it, and he says, there's not a lot that can be gained from general praise. Who, who was watching that item about the um, taxes and funding and making sure we tax big, business, big, big businesses on the news this morning? I think a few people were when I mentioned it. you see the one about it when um, Jackie Chan's martial arts buddy announced that he was launching a, a water um, a water product in, in Australia, and he's, he's going to bring this water across here. And it was interviewing him and his wife from Australia, and they were full of non-specific platitudes about Australia. Oh, you're so great, you're so wonderful, it's a fantastic country. And I, I just felt so unrewarded by that, you know, so unstimulated, so unspecial, because it was platitudes. Oh, you're fantastic, it's great, what an amazing church you've got here. You know, it means very, very little. And I think that's one of the problems. These, what does work in self-esteem and confidence is specific praise. You were really helpful to me on that occasion because you said this, and I've remembered that every month since, and as a result of it, I've done that. That's the kind of feedback you want to hear as a counsellor rather than you were really helpful. You know, it's the specifics that you want to hear. And the other problem, of course, is that people get very good at answering self-esteem questionnaires. So one of the things you realise is if you get a class of kids and you start doing self-esteem questionnaires, by the end of the term, their self-esteem scores are higher because they've learnt what to say in the same way that David knows that resilience is bouncing back. He'd probably do quite well on a resilience questionnaire. Question is, is he a resilient kid? I'm going to take you on a, a bit of a journey and do some more iconoclastic stuff and destroy a few more things and then get you to come up with the answer in some small groups in a second. So let, let, let's carry on. This, this is a quote from some American... Sorry, the previous page. Um, this is a quote from some um, American research in, in, in Glynn's book. He says, Today's young Americans are more entitled, assertive, and confident, and more miserable than ever before. So you've got these things, yes, I'm confident, you know, but actually, I'm really struggling with my mental and emotional health. How does all that self work its way together? Um, Chuck, Chuck Palahniuk is, is, is on the next slide. He's an author. He wrote a book called Fight Club, which famously got made into that film with, with Brad Pitt and Ed Norton. And he's a He's a, he's a postmodernist, so he's a, he's a writer, and if you've studied English literature, you might have come across his work, and he's written a number of books. He's written Fight Club 2, yet to make it as a film, but it's there if you want to read it. But, but he says, this is um, what um, Tyler Durden, Brad Pitt's character, says, our war has had no great depression, no great war. Depression is our lives. We were raised on television to believe that we'd all be millionaires, movie gods, and rock stars, but we won't, and we're starting to figure that out. And it was this over-promise, under-deliver kind of idea. And you can get into all the sociology and talk about baby boomers and Gen X and all this kind of thing. But there's, my point is, let's not go the same way with resilience, because I think resilience is better than that. Let's not fall into these chaps. And let's also keep the theological or the Christian critique on it as well. 
philosophically, this can sometimes be that if given enough praise, enough time, people will turn out good. The Bible tells us otherwise. The Bible tells us that given enough time, people turn out bad because they have the old man because actually we're fallen. So, so we need to bring those critiques to it and let's make sure that we don't go down the same, same sort of route as, as boosterism. Now, um, Chuck, Chuck Pahunik invented a phrase. He invented the phrase snowflake. And you might have heard of the snowflake generation. It was in Fight Club first. You are not special. You are not a beautiful and unique snowflake. Brad Pitt says that in Fight Club. And that's, I mean, obviously the... People used the word snowflake before, but that was one of the things it was picked up and it became this critique of the movement. And it's actually a very good idea, this idea of a sort of snowflake generation, because I mean, snow, you know, do you get snow in Melbourne? Nah. <laughs> Come to Scotland, you get snow. But what happens to snowflakes is they settle on your coat and they look all beautiful. And about five minutes later, they've turned into a sloppy puddle at the first sign of stress or heat or anything like that. And that's the idea behind this snowflake generation. And it's coupled with terms like helicopter mums who will advocate for their children's university entry and things like that and go and see the dean at the university when their kids get bad exam results. And heaven knows, you know, I mean, helicopter mums, snowflake generation, these are some of the terms that are, are coming out. And I think it's because we got self-esteem wrong and we got other related concepts wrong. So let's not do that with resilience because resilience is really, really important because we do need to build more resilience because we've got evidence that it's related to mental health and also, as already established, the ambulances at the top of the cliff current system is, is not working in, in some areas at least. Now, one of the controversies around resilience is can you build it? And I thought I'd do something biblical, seeing as this is a Christian conference. This is my, my preach for the day. I'm going to tell you the parable of the wise and foolish builders. Probably most of you can do this in your sleep. Therefore, every, this is... Um, Matthew chapter 7, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a foolish man, and doesn't put them into practice, sorry, is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came, the streams rose, the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell down with a crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, as he taught as one who had authority and not teach their teachers of the law. So Jesus, conceptually in this parable, I think is introducing something around the concept of resilience, but as always, you have to be slightly careful when you bring psychological concepts to bear on the Bible. So let me spell this out a little bit. The first thing we need to remember is that the ultimate foundation is Jesus Christ. Okay, and that, that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about, are you, to cut a long story short, saved or not saved, if, if that makes sense. You know? So I think that is our ultimate sort of foundation. But he is saying more than that. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is where he's actually giving a whole bunch of life advice. This is not just theological dichotomies. This is life advice. This is right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, anyone who hears these words and puts them into practice. So he is suggesting that this is not just a theological situation. This is something deeper. When we talk about foundations, we can talk about the past. And there's things in our past that affect our resilience levels. Were we in a nurturing or supportive environment? Were we or were we not abused and experienced certain traumas? Were we given 
opportunities and, and, and praised appropriately as a, as a result? Did we do these things that helped us build resilience in the past? And in the very young, we're talking a bit earlier about prevention, weren't we? The infant mind, what's happening with neuroplasticity, epigenetics, all these trendy words, what's happening in the infant brain? You know, we know that getting kids to play correctly builds most of the connections in the brain, and that's before they even get to school, before they even can speak. So, so there's something here about building resilience in terms of foundations, spiritual foundations, psychological, neuroconnectivity foundations, call it what you want to, social, social foundations. But then the life events and traumas come. So the rain falls, the floods come, the winds blow, and Jesus is saying... These things are happening in the here and now. You know, it's not just your traumas when you're very young. These traumas keep coming. And it's how we respond to those in the here and now. You know, because you've got the foundations, yes, but you've also got the traumas and the life events coming on top. And then he's saying, in the future, everyone who hears these words and puts... And that's the whole words of the Sermon on the Mount. Don't forget here, that's what we're talking about. Jesus is speaking, the whole Sermon on the Mount is being spoken of with the kind of authority. Everyone who hears these words and puts them into practice. So there's things that we can do that build resilience. Because you will be working primarily, I'm guessing, with people who perhaps don't have great foundations, do have lots of life events, and the question is, can you build resilience in those people? Can you make them more resilient? Or are we just supporting and they become more broken, learned helplessness as a, as a result of, of, of what they've been through? So I'm going to get you into small groups and start chatting if you can. And I'd like you to do a few things. I'd like you to try and define resilience. How does it differ from self-esteem and humanism? How is it different? How is it a different way of thinking? Am I correct, or is Glynn correct in his, his destruction of, of, of self-esteem? Can you build resilience going forward, or is it really so dependent on the early years that we need to think differently? You know, we, we need to be doing something different. You know, somebody was saying, um, what's the point in having youth mental health services while you've still got child poverty? Now, I think that's a very valid point, you know, it, we need to get child poverty sorted, but we can also have youth mental health services, can't we? So, so you know, as, can you build resilience? Is it something that can be changed? And also thinking, does this make a difference? Have you seen a situation where someone's had poor resilience, whatever that is, has got more resilient and therefore been able to stave off the impacts of traumas, etc., and therefore been able to not get that episode of depression they were going to get? That's... That's what I mean by effective, not just that they know that self-esteem is bouncing back. Um, while we do that, you've heard it before, but the reason I chose the Hillsong song, um, Cornerstone, my hope is built on nothing less, is because it's based on that parable. So there's a link there to your tunes. Off you go, 10 minutes, have a chat. Right, fantastic. Just to get a little bit of feedback, um, who would like to have a stab at giving a definition of resilience, anyone? Anyone put it in an easy, catchy phrase? Gentleman in the middle there. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yes, well done, thank you. Whatever happens, I will be okay. Whatever happens, I will be okay, fantastic, great. Thank you so much. I do notice everyone's still got social phobia. 
Um, but you can come and sit in the front after lunch. Good. Anyone else got a definition? Yep. Oh, are you, are you, no, sorry, your friend volunteered you. Go on then. <laughs> you can thank her afterwards. Just drawing on the strengths and what you've achieved and saying, I did that before, I can do it again. Yeah, yeah, I did that. And I guess it, it's that sort of specific knowledge. We want to be able to get into that conscious resilience. You know, I think some people are unconsciously resilient, but if we can get into conscious resilience, that's quite good. It's, it's one of the sort of things I sometimes say about, about healing in the church for depression versus cognitive behavioural therapy for depression. It, it's great if Jesus heals you, but the problem is you don't know how he healed you. The Holy Spirit just, just did. And I think if you're doing that alongside some CBT, then you know how you walked into healing and you can have the skills to, to do that again and to, to learn more as a result. So it's, it's making conscious things that perhaps we do unconsciously. Yeah. Any, anyone else want to have a stab at a definition or something? Yeah. I think I might have seen this on a poster, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> Just um, the ability to bounce back from life's challenges. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. So that sort of bouncing back. and the, 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 This is the interesting point, isn't it? Does something have to happen to you to be resilient? Is it possible to be naturally resilient? You know, I mean, some people are born beautiful. Other people have to go to the gym. Um, you know, it, are some people just resilient? Or do you have to have experienced trauma? In, interesting question. Yeah, lady at the front here. I think it's got a lot to do with your family of origin and the way that from a very young age you're allowed to have troubles or fail and find a way back, find a way of coping and it becomes something that's very um, done very unconsciously but yeah. there's practical skills that are, are there from that earliest age which means they will go through difficulties but... Yeah. Um, the way to do it is, is already programmed in there and that gives some people a really big head start. Yeah, definitely. So, so this sort of idea that if you're going to learn to ride a skateboard, you're probably going to fall off, um, you know, a couple of times. And actually, if we stop our kids from riding skateboards, they, they will never become, become resilient. Thanks, Chris. Um, yeah, it's an interesting point, isn't it? I mean, John, John Bowlby, who a um, uh, paediatrician, uh, and psychotherapist who spoke about attachment theory, which many of you will, will, will know about. He spoke about this idea of good enough parenting. So it wasn't good parenting, it was good enough parenting. And the good enough parent will titrate the um, amount of stress that the child is allowed to be under with what they can cope. So if you think about it very simply, you've got um, a baby, it can't tolerate that much, and before it just needs breastfed, it gets hungry, wah, breastfed that, or, or, or bottle fed, you know, it, it just has to happen pretty quickly. And then as the kid gets a few months old, you're trying to get into a routine. And then you're saying, no, it's not time for your feed yet. We're going to play for a little bit and you can distract them. Then the kid can kind of crawl around the back of the sofa and play behind the sofa, often to give its first gift to the world. Those of you who are Freudian will know what I mean. And, but then it comes back after a little while, doesn't it? And it can't cope with more than, it likes to be in the same room as you. And then if you go to a sort of four-year-old's birthday party, all the mums and dads stay around, you know, a five-year-old's birthday party, they might drop them off, but 
Some of the mums stay around and dads stay around, and then they come and pick them up at the end. Um, six, seven-year-old's birthday party, it's like, great, got you out of my hair for a couple of hours, I'll come and pick you up at the end. And then they're doing like, you know, a, a sleepover in Beavers or Kias or whatever you call it here in, in Australia. And then eventually they're gonna go to cub camp for like a whole weekend, and then they go to scout camp for a whole week, and then eventually they go to university, and then eventually your children move to New Zealand for two years. So, um, but, but this is the titration. And the, the, the distance of the titration reflects the depth and strength of the attachment, which I think is related to, to resilience. Re resilience is not rocket science, by the way. It will draw on theories that you already understand, like attachment theory and that kind of thing. It's, it's not something new. It's not something that's just been invented. It's just giving a, a different language to it. But the parents will get it wrong. So, like, you know, one of my kids, cub camp, great. Other kid, no, nah, don't stay away from home for the night. He's not quite there yet. And we might push him. Actually, he did. He managed a school sleepover last term, which was great. I gave him loads of, loads of praise for that because he'd been quite worried about it. Classic parent thing. We forgot to leave his sleeping bag with him. So I had to, to run up at 11 o'clock and produce the sleeping bag when they finally got around to go to sleep. Um, but, you know, we, we didn't quite have perfect parenting there. We had good enough parenting, and he grew through that. And actually, it's quite scary having a perfect parent, isn't it? You know, who's always so measured, never raises their voice. You met those... Perfect parents sometimes, it's like, oh, I find you quite intimidating. I, 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 I would like you to, to shout and scream from time to time because that's where I've been, and if you haven't been there, I don't understand that. So, so there is this idea, isn't there? Just resilience, I mean, these are just some dictionary definitions here. The capacity to recover quickly, uh, thanks to Dr. Google who gave us these. The ability of a substance or object to spring back into shape. It, it's not a personality trait. Um, partly because any psychologist will tell you that personality traits are very specific things that are measured statistically and very robustly. It's not a personality trait. Um, and it, it, is it only learned by trials and temptations? I have to say, no, I think you can. It, like some people, you know, can people be Christians from birth? Or do they all have to sort of find God and pray the prayer? I mean, it's, it's a bit of both, isn't it? You know, I mean, you do need to... <coughs> own your faith, but there are some people genuinely who've, who've always known God. And likewise, I think there's always some people who have always been resilient, but I think they, they can also learn it and verbalizing it, making the unconscious conscious through those things. And it, it's not the same as happiness. Negative emotions can still and will still, of course, occur. They will still occur, it's just they're better navigated and better released. So by way of kicking off this conference, I, I am not an international expert on resilience. You're getting that tomorrow morning from, from Dr. Alastair Vance, who's the professor of child psychiatry here in Melbourne. He, he knows the science behind a lot of this child development. Uh, so I'm not going to give you the detailed science, but I am going to try and give you a bit of a structure to think about how to learn about resilience. And it, it's very simple. You all work in schools, so you've all come across knowledge, skills, and attitudes. So we need to get some knowledge about resilience. You can go and get that from a book, so I'm going to cover it fairly quickly. You need to get some skills in resilience, but they're not as difficult as you might think. And then we need to get our attitudes right about resilience. We need to be thinking that actually people can change, people can improve. We can do this. So a bit of history here. Before we had resilience, we had vulnerability. So what you've got... Um, it's on the next slide there. What you've got, the left-hand chap, I'm going to put some of these sort of very wise-looking people. Some look wise, some have amazing hair. Um, but 
the, the one looking very wise is Professor Sir Michael Rutter um, from the Institute of Psychiatry in London, probably the person who founded child and adolescent psychiatry as, as a speciality and as a research discipline. And Sir Michael got a bunch of kids on the Isle of Wight, which is a little island of about 50,000 people just to the south of the UK coast. It's a 20-minute yeah, ferry journey across to the island. Um, and and he, he looked at the Isle of Wight studies and he, he proved, surprise, surprise, that level of intellectual ability and psychosocial environment, those are the big predictive things for adult, going on to get adult mental health and also adolescent mental health. He looked at those two things. He was the first person really to do that epidemiological research. And the Isle of Wight study ran for about 40 years. It's one of the classic longitudinal studies in the literature. And it was all kicked off in the 1960s by Sir Michael. The other person who did this work was um, Brown and Harris. So down the bottom you've got George Brown, and the lady above is, is, is Tyrrell Harris, also from London, who did some important work on risk factors for depression. Um, now, this was among women in Camberwell. Camberwell is one of the, uh, used to be, it's all been gentrified now, but it used to be one of the less desirable suburbs of London. And he came up with these four risk factors for depression. Loss of mother before 11 years, unemployment, lack of confiding relationships, and more than three children under the age of 15 at home. So you can see we're beginning to get a bit more specific. Um, George, 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 um, George Brown came and spoke on the um, master's course I was doing in psychiatry. And I, I said to him, I said, why was these studies only among women in Camberwell? And he looked me straight in the eye and said, all the men are in prison. And that's partly funny, it's also partly serious. The, the point, they weren't obviously all in prison, but what was happening with the Campermore men is they were in and out of prison quite quickly, so it was very difficult to do a longitudinal study. Whereas the women were the ones who were there, as is so often, you know, providing the continuity for the children, so they could be followed up in an epidemiological study. But, but the, the, the point he was trying to make was that he would have studied men if they'd been consistent enough to be studied. So I think there were equivalent risk factors for men as well. But if you start digging into, into resilience, you'll come across vulnerability factors and you'll, you'll, you'll come across Rutter and Brown and Harris and other people. Just a, a note aside, we need to be careful about using epidemiology to study causation. Just because these things are related doesn't mean they cause it. They are risk factors for it, okay? I am at risk of falling off this stage. If I do fall off this stage, it's my fault for walking too near the edge, okay? Difference between risk factor and causation. A little bit of science. Again, just to give you the idea that we are beginning to piece this together. We are beginning to understand why some do well and why some do won't. I'll start at the bottom. Some of the early papers on resilience, if you go digging around in the science, you'll see papers from the um, late 80s and that sort of thing, looking at children of mothers with schizophrenia. Um, not that people can't be mothers if they have schizophrenia. Some are excellent mothers. But the point is it is a significant, and it's a fairly measurable, from an epidemiological point of view, a fairly measurable life event for the child. And they said, well, actually, some do really well. And some don't do very well. It's not necessarily related to the severity of the mother's illness, although obviously there is a degree of relationship with mums always in and out of hospital. Um, but they, 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 some do well. Why is that? Class transitions. What they know is that um, if people can't move social class, you know, what, what is the point in studying for school qualifications if there's no jobs, if, if there's nowhere to go, if there's no, all the factories have shut in your, in your area? 
for the mines are not open this year, for example. There's class transitions, and that stuck social mobility is, is, a, is a problem. Psychology, again, you, you've, you've come across these ideas around unhealthy attachment behavior, and the more unhealthy attachment behavior there is, be it disorganized or, or um, I can't remember the other one, there's, there's three types and two are bad, aren't they, with, with attachment behavior, but they are associated with, 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 with poor resilience. Attributional biases, this is, um, if you are brought up, or if by nature you believe that the world's problems are stable, things happen out there and you have little control over them and also that they're very global, i.e. everything, a global statement, everything's going to be bad. That is more of a problem, a risk factor for depression. Whereas if you believe that things can change, if you believe that you've got autonomy and agency over things, that you can make a difference, if you believe that that is going to stay bad, but I can change this, those are the kinds of thinking. So, so before we, we sort of drew this all up and spoke about, um, called it resilience, people have been talking about attributional biases and some of the early psychoanalysts in the 60s and 70s were using these kinds of language to think about this ability to be autonomous, to be self-directing, to change, change yourself. And then we've got some biology in there. We've spoken about neuroplasticity. Epigenetics might be a new word. So the genetics is the single gene. You know, pav, um, sorry, the single gene, you know, this gene gives you blue eyes, for example. If both your parents have got blue eyes, you can have blue eyes. If one of your parents got brown eye, the brown eye gene usually overrules the blue gene. It's, it's a single gene situation. Whereas epigenetics is what happens on top of the gene. Is the gene expressed or not? Is it turned on or not? Is it methylated or not? Technical term. But it basically means, is the gene doing something? So you may have the gene or not, but the degrees to which the gene is expressed are important. So as well as studying biology, and we actually know that humans, generally speaking, have the same DNA as the next person, we've got to study the expression of certain genes. And this is where the early childhood environment is so important. Because if your early child development doesn't turn on, your, there's, there's no such thing as a resilience gene. But the genes that together help you be resilient, if, if that's never turned on, the genes are there, but you haven't become resilient. The question is, can you turn it on later in life? And we're thinking this idea, this is a big idea in depression, it's not necessarily all about serotonin. Virtually all of the drugs we've got at the moment are serotonin raisers. And we know it's not just about serotonin because some people don't have low serotonin, they're just very unhappy. They don't have the poor concentration, the weight loss, the, the low libido, the sleep disturbance that, that come with low serotonin. They are just depressed in their mind, not in their body if that makes sense. It's not a, a chemical depression. But something else is going on. There's something here around stress and around cortisol. And we know that people who are under chronic situations of stress become more depressed. And that's not just because of the stressor. It's the effect the stressor has on the brain. And we're beginning to understand cortisol. We're beginning to research anti-inflammatories in depression, in psychosis. You will hear more about this over the, over the coming years. And here's a little model about resilience, a very simple model. Something happens and you either turn left or turn right. So if you turn left, you have an unhelpful emotion. There will be emotions, all right? Ideally, you want to do the blue circle, simply become upset. But if you don't, what happens is you get very angry or you go numb. And those are unhelpful processing because one of them externalizes the problem fully. One of them internalizes the problem fully and unhelpful attributions. This is happening because. Who is doing this? Why is it happening? Whereas actually, 
the resilience cycle is on the other side here. You do become upset. You may have a full-on meltdown, toys out of pram. You know, there is no description of that upsetness. You are allowed to lose it completely, all right? But you then own the process. You, you are just becoming upset. You're not necessarily taking it further down into that left-hand gray panel. You, you own the process. You say, right, okay, this is where I am at. You then start changing the situation. These are the things I can change and move around. That results in, surprise, surprise, less stress, more supports. You're starting to tip the seesaw the other way. That results in increased resilience, and that means that next time there's a stressor, you simply become upset. Okay? Like I say, you know, don't, don't, mean, don't get me wrong when I say simply become upset, but people from North Africa, when they're bereaved, quite often become full-on psychotic for two weeks and sometimes need to be hospitalized. That is a normal reaction to depression in some North African cultures. So you can become very upset, but they simply become upset, and after two weeks, they've processed it. And that's the way their culture does it, rather than our British stiff upper lip. So that's just one model. Again, we'll get these slides sent round or made available on the website. There are other models, but that, I think, is a fairly simple one. This key thing is you don't go beyond the emotion down that negative route. You are processing it more healthfully. Okay, enough chat from me for a bit. We're going to have, if we can, a cheeky little video. This video comes from the Black Dog Institute in Australia. So some of you will have seen their fantastic video. I have a black dog who's, who's seen that. Anyone who works in mental health, Black Dog Institute, I have a black dog. These videos are available. These resources are available. And there are things that, that work to teach resilience. So we've done some knowledge. Let's do some skills. I'm not going to try and teach you skills. I can't really teach skills, apart from the fact you're very resilient because I'm in between you and lunch, so well done. Um, but there are some things that we, we can do. There are some skills that we can teach. One of those, perhaps, is problem solving. And um, those of you who haven't come across it, we've just got the next slide up there. Um, the pro problem solving is, is very, very simple. It, it's a structured process to prioritizing and solving problems using the resources that you have. Now, it sounds ridiculously simple. That's the cycle there on the right. Define it, brainstorm a solution, pick a solution, implement it, review the results. Problem solving is ridiculously easy to do if you know how to problem solve. And a lot of people we work with don't know how to problem solve. So actually, some basic problem solving work, you know, in, in my line of work, I quite often get people, they've just got so many red bills that they don't know which one to tackle first. There is an answer, it's called problem solving, you know, and you, you can take people through that and you go, wow, I've learned how to manage my finances. And it's a, it's a very simple skill. You don't need a psychology diploma to teach problem solving, but it sounds simple to us because we all problem solve. You got here this morning, how did you get here? The problem, you solved it, it it's a solvable problem. But a lot of people don't have problem solving skills. Sleep and exercise, let's get the basics in there. Positive psychology, again, this is, you know, it's not pop psychology. Positive psychology actually, actually does work. It's not the deepest thing necessarily in the world, but it does work. Have you seen those things on Facebook that get you to post something positive for 20 days straight? Okay. The reason why they do that is because it's been proven that if you do say something positive to your friends once a day for 20 days, you will feel happier at the end of it statistically. Okay. Sounds a bit trite. No kittens, please. Just nice things about your friends. But... Practicing gratitude works, and it is something that can be practiced. Practicing kindness works. Practicing being optimistic, not blindly optimistic, but these are, these are some of the things, and there's, there's lots going on in, in positive psychology at the moment that I think we do have something to learn on. It's not just 
humanism or, 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 or pop psychology. It's more than that. G grit is this idea about pursuing long-term goals. You'll see TED Talks all about grit, but it's this idea that you work consistently towards something, perhaps over a number of years, and you actually work towards it rather than what I think a lot of young people do. What do you want, what do, you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a celebrity. Great long-term goal, not an awful lot of working towards it going on. I'm just going to win the lottery and then become a celebrity or something. You know. so, so, so grit is, is that sort of process. And spirituality. I'm not going to talk about spirituality and resilience other than to say it is the most often cited thing that helps people when they have been in life-threatening situations, in, in the Grenfell Tower, in earthquakes, in the Haiti volcanic explosion. People cite spirituality as the thing that enabled them to keep going and come back. And in that, the church has a massive resource which you're not going to get from somewhere else. Who can teach it? Anyone who's qualified by having done the journey themselves. Okay? The key thing I would say is don't share your journey. It might be interesting, but it's probably not that relevant to them. What is relevant to them is what you learnt about the speed at which it happened, because I get it was, bet it was slower than you thought. So those of you who have processed the trauma, those of you who have worked through things, Share the speed at which it happened. Does that make sense? You know, they, they may or may not want to know that your, your marriage ended or something like that, but what you can do is share that you struggled emotionally, didn't go down those routes, and chose to, to set the situation straight. And that look, took time. You didn't snap out of it. You didn't slap on a smiley face and go to work. We have that in the church, don't we? It's what I call a swag, sickly, weak, evangelical grin. Have you, have you come across one of those? You know, we don't have any bad emotions in church, do we? Stick on our swag, go to, go, to, go to church on a Sunday morning. How are you? Fine. Okay. So let's share the speed of it. The other thing, of course, is you don't have to have a massive program to do these things. Um, people do it naturally. I've been involved in the Scouts for years, and the Scouts taught me an awful lot about resilience. I was dropped in the middle of nowhere with a couple of mates in a tent, and we lived. <laughs> it was a bit kill or cure at that point. You know, at one point it was raining so hard that everything was absolutely drenched and we had to go and knock on the door of the local farmhouse and she let us sleep in the barn and then made us chips. That was particularly resilient and skillful. <laughs> skillful, that one, I thought. But we did get to the end of our three-day hike. We did get our Duke of Edinburgh. Okay, so, so these programs exist. And the last thing, I, mean, I remember the um, district uh, who ran the, the scouts near us said, oh, we want you to do a resilience program. We are. And we want you to stop doing something you're doing and do a resilience program. No. Um, so, you know, we had these kind of robust discussions with the, with the district. Because we, we used to take the kids camping six times a year. And they learned loads in that. And yes, we used to give them knives and axes and things like this. Because they learned appropriate supervision and training, I should say, shouldn't I? Otherwise, I get, otherwise I'll get told off again. Um, we used to let them do things that they grew through. We built a monkey bridge over a fairly small ravine, but they built it, and if they went across it, and it was okay, all right? So, so building resilience happens naturally in society, but sometimes we need to spell it out, and some of these are things that work. If you want, just on the next slide, super normal. This is, this is a, a, a TED talk you can listen to. It's a book. I do know, by the way, that super normal is also the name of a restaurant in Melbourne. Has anyone been to super normal? It's got five stars on TripAdvisor. Okay, there we go. So, go and check it out. But it's also a book. And I just read through these because they're, they're just a different way of saying what I was saying before. Recognize your struggle is valid no matter what you're struggling with. Realize the ways you are already resilient. Again, get away from global, get specific. You are already resilient. 
Don't wait for the situation to fix itself. Know your strengths and use them. That's problem solving. Don't try it alone. But know it's not okay to tell everybody. Keep some of your secrets close to your chest, yeah? Find your favorite way to take a mental break. We're going to be doing that on the um, resilience seminar I'm doing this afternoon about what works for you. And be compassionate with yourself. Be kind to yourself. Be generous to yourself. Don't set yourself a goal of sorting this by tomorrow. And the reason why this is so important, again, just to come back to this, we, we must change. We must be getting these interventions early in life. We must be thinking, just on the next slide, about, about promotion, about prevention. We must be getting in in the early parts of life, okay, before aged 24. That's when these things make a difference. You can learn resilience later on in life, but it's a lot harder, and there are many opportunities during our, our, our sort of childhoods to, to, learn, to learn resilience. You've probably heard stories of people who first went abseiling at the age of 50, and it transformed them. Okay. Wouldn't it have been great if they'd done that age 10 with their mates at school? Yeah? So if we can get those things in there, there's growing and growing and growing evidence that resilience is one of the things that does make a difference for promotion. For the last 10 minutes, I'm going to shut up again. I'm just going to get you to think and reflect about what it means to be a school chaplain, to think about how does my job build resilience in others? How does my job as a chaplain build resilience in others? How aware are my school and community that I'm doing this? Or do they just think I'm the youth worker slash Christian influence in the school? Do they know I'm building resilience? Okay. Who do I know who is resilient? And the last question, just to get you thinking, am I resilient? And we're going to have a slightly rockier soundtrack to this one. Robbie Williams, I love my life. Anyone see Robbie when he was in town? Did he come here or was he in Sydney? He was definitely as crossy as somewhere, wasn't he? I went to see him in Auckland. Fantastic. Great. A bit ripe in the language at times, but amazing entertainer. And he, he tells this story about how he's got his kids. And he, he wrote this song, I Love My Life, because he, he says sometimes that, you know, his dad wasn't always there for him and he's not always been there for his kids, but he's really tried to. And now that he's a bit more stable, he wants his kids to be able to grow up and say, I love my life. He wants his kids to grow up and have good mental health and resilience, etc. Those are the sorts of things that he's talking about. So we're going to listen to I love my life while you try and answer those questions, and then it's lunchtime. Good news and some bad news. The bad news is it's not lunch now. I was being a good enough parent. You've got something else for half an hour. The good news is you've become more resilient as a result of that. So... Congratulations. But joking apart, before we hand over to the team just for the half-hour section before lunch, just any, any questions that came out of that? Let's just get a few ideas. I'm probably not going to answer them that much, but we'll take them forward into the rest of the conference. Any questions or comments or people want to share stuff? And Chris is going to run around. Yeah, right at the back. Uh, yeah, just um, thinking about uh, the concept of bouncing back. Um, whether it's just my simple brain, but where were you before you had to bounce back from? And is that place a good place anyway? Yep. That's a good point, isn't it? Because, I mean, I work with a lot of people who've had a breakdown because they've been working too hard or something, and they, they say, I just want to get well again. And I say, do you really want to get back to what you were like before? Because where you were before led here. 
Um, so it, it's about a new new, new you, isn't it? And that's why it's making this stuff conscious that's important. Because you, you don't want to get back to what drove your self-esteem, whatever that is, before. You, you want to learn from this. Because if you do go back to that, you increase the chance of depression. If you journey well through this, you decrease your chance of depression again. Yeah. Bounce forward, maybe. The ball actually did go forwards, but yeah. But um, I was just interested, reflecting on so many of those strategies. I know for years chaplains have been talking about, we do, we practice, we read about, etc. But invariably we come across the, the young person, the, the adolescent or the parent who just goes, no, nope, I've tried that, I've done that, I've do done all of those things, or I can't go to sleep properly because this happens. And How is it that we we get those, um, get past that barrier. What, you know, and you work on building relationships, all of those things, but it just feels like you just hit the wall. Mm -hmm. Good question, I'm not gonna answer that one. Um, no, 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 I, I, will say, I will say two things quickly. Um, the, the first is that there is a place in, for some people to see a really skilled psychologist, because if people are just consistently negative, some of that comes from how they see the world. And I think a good psychologist can maybe do the work to change those what we call schemas, that, that deeper... Yeah. <laughs> Can't solve everything. The other thing I was going to say is obviously it's, it's, you know, it takes more than a village. You know, it takes a village to raise a child, doesn't it? So, so what, even though you perhaps have failed, if that's the right word, you've actually done something quite good and perhaps it's for the next person to do it or, or something like that. So we need bigger structures, we need the government to do their bit, etc. Got one more? Yeah, just at the back there. Just thinking about resilience being specific, that a lot of areas of our life we are resilient in but there's areas where we're not as resilient and that needs to be considered for our young people as well. So it's a learning process and I suppose if we can learn the skills in one area, we can transfer them to others. But there are certain things which we are more sensitive to. Definitely. Yep. Agree totally. Okay. Chris, I think I'll hand over to you. But oh, One quickly at the front. I'm not sure whether it can be quick. Um, what's your best advice, Rob, um, when you're dealing with kids with untreated post-traumatic stress where the actual physical um, acting out of their brain gets in the way of, uh, you know, the reasoning that's attached to all these strategies? Yeah, yeah I mean, again, it depends slightly if it's a specific trauma or a chronic trauma. So I think, you know, specific trauma, PTSD, if the person's been, let's say, raped once or, or, or twice maybe, or been in a car crash or, or, or something like that. That, as you say, is the brain misfiring in that situation. And there are established therapeutic techniques to deal with that. People often don't go for therapy in those situations because they've had reasonably good mental health for most of their life, but then the irresistible force hit the immovable object, if that makes sense. And people can become very, I, I should have snapped out of it by now, why can't I just get through this? You know, this has happened to other people, why am I? So, so what I would say is if, if it's a single trauma, you really need to be encouraging good cognitive behavioral therapy for, for PTSD. Sometimes medication can help alongside that as well. Complex trauma is more difficult because there are psychological techniques that work, but 
because it's often perhaps sexual abuse or domestic violence that's been going on for years, it's also affected the development. So you've, you've got to do a slightly difficult thing where you've got a medical model, which is brain's broken, need to fix it, you'll be okay, alongside a developmental slash resilience model, which is you need to be growing and I will walk alongside you, but actually it's going to be rocky and you'll learn as much from the rocks as you will from the destination. Does that, it's, it's quite difficult, complex trauma, because you're... You either get too medical and you medicate and therapize, or you, or you get too developmental and forget there's medical stuff that works. So it's tricky. I, I, think, I think so. I mean, I think that degree of complex trauma, yeah, is, is something for mental health services. But you can be alongside and be aware that sometimes it's a medical approach. A, 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 you know, you've got certain things. You've got a hernia. You need a man with a knife. If you've got an overactive amygdala, you probably need something to turn that down, like a tablet. CBT will process the traumas. You know, PTSD is a bit like um, you take the duvet and shove it in the cupboard, and the cupboard just sits open, and the duvet keeps looking at you and goes, hello, I'm still here, and you shut the cupboard door. And every time you walk past it, the duvet is sticking it out. And at some point, you've got to get the duvet out, smooth it out, fold it up nicely, put it in the cupboard, shut the door. And, and cognitive behavioral therapy for PTSD will do that. It will process the memory and put it back in the memory store so you can access it when you want to, whereas at the moment the triggers excessively activate it and sometimes you just get flashbacks. So there are things that work, but particularly with complex, complex trauma, chronic trauma, sexual abuse, it, it's such a developmental thing as well that people need to grow and, and developing is about good enough parenting. It's about resilience, it's about risk taking. It's, but it's about therapeutic risk-taking. It's not about discharging someone from hospital hoping they fail. It's about saying, we need to talk about discharge because actually you won't learn until you're more independent. And you need to set it up and give it a therapeutic formulation around it and enough support um, and emphasise that actually excessive cotton wool, people won't change probably as much as I can answer now, and I need to hand over the team. So thank you so much. You've been a great audience. <laughs>